Well, good morning and welcome back. Hopefully everybody had a nice Thanksgiving break and ready to go for two more weeks. You know, we have put up for two more weeks and then a final. So. Uh, we have due today or by Wednesday, I'll even take them up to Wednesday, the observation data because I'm not doing the project today. So if you didn't get it or didn't get a copy of it, I only want a copy. I don't want your original sheet. You still need that. And then on Wednesday, if it goes well, on Friday, if it doesn't go as well, I'll have the project data ready for you to work with. So it'll be one of the days this week. I guarantee it'll be this week because I want you to have it done before the weekend, before it's due. Even if everybody's going to wait till Thursday night to do it, I know how it works. You're going to wait till Thursday night. I still don't want to do it on Wednesday with you. So I could do it on, do it on Friday and have you email it to me, really, because everybody's going to wait till Friday night. Never mind. But no, we'll do it. We'll, do, we'll be done this week. And then we have coming up this week an article review. The last of the article reviews is due this Friday. And so is the exam makeup assignment if you're doing that. I need those in by Friday. So that gives me a little bit of time to look at them before getting everything at the end of the semester. So if you're going to do those, if you're, if you're, well, hopefully you're doing this one. If you're going to do the optional one, make sure I get that by December. Quiz 7, I think I'm doing something a little bit different with. It probably will not be It'll probably be some, I'll probably be giving you some kind of handout to do and work and turn it back as the quiz. It'll be more like a take-home quiz instead of the online one. I'm going to try something. Still experimenting with the best way to work those. So that, there'll be, I'll be giving you something this week, but I don't think it will be a normal online one that we've done for the others. Homework 8, I, first, I never gave you homework 7, I guess. So it turns out I never gave you a homework 7. So you have homework 7 slash 8. You've got a double homework assignment with 30 points. But, but I cut out 8 questions. So instead of being 20 questions doubled, it's 12 questions, but worth double points. So I only added two questions, which makes up for that one homework assignment I gave you way back that only had eight questions. So, so it is worth 30 points, though. So don't miss this one, because it is weighted double, so the homework grade stays the right percentage. But I didn't feel like it, I didn't really want to give you 20 questions with all the other stuff going on. But I do want you to do these, because you will see some of these as the S, some, something similar to some of these as the essay portions on the final or on uh, the final. So you do want to look at them. Won't forget you guys this time. Two, go. Two. So, of course, I didn't expect you guys to remind me that I forgot to give you a homework. So, okay. So there's only two extra questions. Instead of ten, it's twelve. And again, do look at them. It is worth thirty points. So each question is going to be worth a little bit more than it was before. And those, again, are due the last day of class because that's all the material that we'll be covering right up through almost the last day. So they'll be due that Friday, again, as normal. Quiz 8, I scheduled for in class on December 9th. I've usually, I try to make quiz 8 a very nice, easy one. So try to give you the last few 12 points of the quizzes so that you, everybody gets them all. And what I've done before is I usually give you a list of 12 objects, most of them the planets, and then a couple of throw in a star and a galaxy, and I have you list them in order of increasing distance. So if you know your planets in order from Mercury or Sun and Mercury out through Neptune, Pluto, then usually you can get it. And if I tell you that that's what it's going to be in advance, you can usually have time to memorize it and get 12 points. So that's usually been my final quiz. So I tell you what it is. So. The only thing I did do is I took down the one poster that we used to have up that had all the planets in order. So I took, did take that down that used to be up there. So not going to give it that easy. Although I should leave it up and just see if I tell you, does anybody notice it? So 
I've done that with exams before. I did it, in fact, in one of these classes. I gave them a set of review questions to work on before the exam. I give you the review sheets now, but I did actually a set of review multiple choice questions. I put them all back on the on this exam exactly. So it didn't help. <laughs> so it didn't help much, but I, you couldn't, they couldn't say they hadn't seen them. And then observations are due December as well. So that's why I'm starting December 9th, so I've kind of split those up. So I'm not grading constantly that week. And then the only thing I haven't added in is our final exam, which is Monday the Monday the 12th. So, two weeks. <laughs> Scary, huh? Monday the 12th. So what? One, two, two weeks? It's two weeks from today. Scary, huh? Two weeks from right now, you will be sitting here taking a final exam. <sighs> okay. All right. So, quest questions on the assignments? No? Picture of the day for the day, then. Asteroid Vesta. We looked at Vesta. I think we've looked at a picture of Vesta before. We have the asteroid here. We're looking at the surface of the asteroid. It's a small asteroid. It's one of the bigger asteroids, but it's still small compared to what we've been what we've talked we talked about when we talked about the planets. It's only about 500 kilometers across, so about 300 miles. So you know you could drive around it very easily. I mean, it might take you a good part of a day, but you could drive around it. Be a little bumpy too, but hey. But so it's relatively small. And you actually can notice that in the horizon as you look at the edge of the picture, you see it's not quite a nice smooth curved horizon. It's very lumpy. It's such a small object that it can't actually it doesn't have enough gravity to pull itself into a sphere. All the other things we've looked at, or most of them, were big enough that their gravity was strong enough to be able to pull them into a sphere. So for example, the moon, our moon, looked very round. The Earth is very round. When we looked at the other planets, they were round. Stars were all very round. Their gravity, their individual gravities, was strong enough to pull them into a spherical shape. This object is small enough that it isn't. So we actually can see how jagged and rough the, the horizon is there. The other thing, and what actually the picture is pointing out, is actually this landslide that occurred. So you can see the cliff here, and you can see where material has fallen down. Now to give you a sense of scale, that's 20 kilometers, or about 12 miles. So that's not just a little tiny cliff. You're talking about thing that, something, a cliff that is, you know, not the ones you drive through, but a cliff that's mile, many miles high. But there had been a landslide. Material kind of settled down here. And it happened a long time ago. And we can say that pretty confidently because we can see craters on top of it. Craters, again, tell you about the age of an object in the solar system. The more craters we see, the older that part of the surface is. So the moon had a lot of craters. Earth has very few. Just means that at some point, they all got hit just as much. But the Earth has plate tectonics and keeps reworking the surface. And it's got rain and weather and things that the moon doesn't. So all the craters on the Earth get wiped out. So we only see the most recent ones. But we can see the ones on the moon that formed four and a half billion years ago because there's never been any activity on there, any significant activity since the Maria were formed. So, 
And this, is, this picture was taken not from Earth, but from the Dawn spacecraft, which is actually orbiting this asteroid. So there's actually a spacecraft that we've sent that is now orbiting this asteroid. It's just finished its high resolution, high orbit, in a high orbit. And it's going down into a lower orbit to look at some parts in more detail. And probably this cliff and collapse is something that it will look at. It will stay orbiting this asteroid for a few more months. And then it's going to leave sometime next year and actually leave the orbit of the asteroid and go to another asteroid, Ceres, the largest of the asteroids. So it's actually this one satellite, this one spacecraft that we've sent is actually going to observe two, two different ones, two different asteroids. So question, question. No questions. Going to go from the middle of the solar system out to the edge of the universe. So a little bit of a jump here. All righty. Oops. Nope, not that, not that far of a jump yet. That, that's, that comes up in a few minutes. Okay, this is where we finished up on Wednesday. I'd shown you this slide. And what we were looking at here, and again, I'll just review this one. We went through this last time on Wednesday. But what we were looking at is this is that, this is the line of hydrogen. This is the line of hydrogen that should be in the ultraviolet. So this is that primary transition between the ground state and the first state of hydrogen. It should be way over here. We don't see it there. In this quasar that's very distant, we see it shifted all the way out into the middle of the visible part of the spectrum. So this thing is moving so fast that the Doppler shift didn't just shift it a few nanometers, which is what most of what we looked at. You know, you looked at shifting it from there to there and there, you know, a little tiny shift. It's managed to shift this wavelength from here, from ultraviolet, all the way into the visible part of the spectrum. And what we get to see in between is all this, all these little lines in between. This isn't noise. These are actually the same line. This is the emission line at the quasar. But we see it in absorption all the way across, all the way back the universe, across the universe to us. So we see all of those are little, what they call Lyman alpha lines. So they're the same line of hydrogen. They're all the identical line, but it's passing through all these, as this light passes through all these gas clouds in space, each of them is shifted by a little bit different amount. Each of them is moving away from us. The further away the, further away the object is, the quasar is the most distant in this case, it's moving away from us at a certain speed, but gas clouds in between us and that quasar can be moving away at lesser speeds and lesser speeds as they get closer and closer to us. So we're actually getting a snapshot of the entire universe here by looking at where the hydrogen is because where the absorption is. So the more absorption, the more hydrogen there's present there. The less absorption, there's a chunk of the universe with no hydrogen. So along that direct line of sight to the quasar, looking at it, we can tell about the entire density of the universe. So we can learn about the entire universe, what kind of, how the hydrogen how the hydrogen is present there. And you can see where it is, and you can see where it isn't. You can see there's areas where there's very little hydrogen absorption. And you can see areas where there's a lot more. We can use that with different quasars to sort of map out the densities of the universe and find out how much material there actually is in the universe. So that was where we finished up last time. Now we're going to jump into another topic. This was a nice example. This was actually a what looked like a double quasar. So two quasars together. Turns out it wasn't a double quasar. It was the same quasar. 
they're actually it's two images of the identical quasar. So not just, not just similar, but exactly the same. So we'd watch, you could watch them and you'd watch, they'll get a little bit brighter. One gets brighter, the other gets brighter. One gets fainter, the other gets fainter. Their variations were exactly the same. So not just, so not two quasars, but two identical. We're seeing two images of the same quasar. And the question is, why are we seeing two? How do we get two images of this identical object? You know, one quasar, one quasar. How do we see two images of the identical thing? Is there a mirror out there in space reflecting, you know, reflecting light out in space to, to see it? Not a mirror, actually a lens. There's actually a giant lens out there that is causing this. And what it is, it's not a lens in our traditional sense. When I say lens, what are you thinking of? You're thinking of a piece of glass on your glasses, you know, contact lens. You're thinking of a big piece of glass or plastic or something. It's a lens in terms of gravity. It's a gravitational lens. And what happens is that, and we talked about this with general relativity, right? I think we talked about that. We talked about how the sunlight, starlight was bent coming around the sun when you looked at it during an eclipse. Well, if there's a big, strong source of gravity out in space, it can do the same thing. It can actually bend the light from the quasar, and we can see it in two different images as well. And of course, a big, strong source of gravity is going to be likely a black hole or a big cluster of galaxies. But this is what happens. You have some sort of galaxy, black hole, some big, strong source of gravity, something with a lot of matter to it. And if it's lined up pretty close with the quasar directly, almost directly behind it, then you have some light that travels this path that gets bent right into our field of view and makes it look like the quasar is coming from this point. And you get other light that's going off in this direction, trying to head off this way where we'd never see it, but gets bent because it passes by the galaxy and comes close to us again. So we actually can see two of these, we can actually see both of these. And we end up seeing not the quasar, sometimes this quasar is not even visible, might be blocked out by the galaxy, but we see the two images around it. Or you might see the original image and a couple of images. There's a number of different things you can see. So it tells us, we use this, we can actually learn about, we not only learn about the quasar, we learn about the galaxy, because I told you the variations could be the same. Well, they might not occur simultaneously, though. What if there is a difference between this path? What if one of these paths is one light year longer? So say this one, the top one looks like the longer path to me. So let's say that's the longer path. So right now you see a big spike and a big intensity variation today. What are you going to see on November 28th of next year if it's exactly one year? then all of a sudden this quasar, you're going to know what this one's going to do because you've already seen it happen. Because the light travel had to travel a little bit longer path. So you can see the variations, but they might not be simultaneously. There could be differences of, depending on the difference in the path. It could be weeks, months, years, depending on how long the travel path is different. But they're, but they're the same. You can still match them up. All you got to do is shift them off and you can see exactly the same variations. We also learn about this galaxy, or this black hole, or whatever happens to be in the middle, or this cluster of galaxies. Because we know from Einstein's general relativity how much mass it takes to bend the light a certain amount. So if we're watching how this galaxy is bending light, we can determine its mass. We don't need to sit there and watch. I talked about Kepler's third law. Now you don't have to use that math. Now you've got to use more complicated stuff. 
not on the homework, trust me. But you can still determine it. We can determine the mass of that galaxy just by looking at the starlight without even watching for orbits or anything else. We can just use its effect on the light. So as long as Einstein was right, which is still in question, right? They just, well, this is gen- not general relativity, that's special relativity. But I think it was last week I got, they added a second version of that experiment and actually confirmed again faster than light travel for neutrinos. So maybe a possibility that Einstein was wrong there. He may be wrong here someplace along the line. But for right now, that's one way to get the mass of a galaxy. Just by looking at the bending of the, star, of the starlight, or in this case the quasar light coming from behind it. In some cases, you can see more. You don't not just confine to seeing just two images. You can actually see four or six or ten, depending on how exact the alignment is. The better the alignment of the Earth, the gravity source, and the object being imaged, the more, Im- more you can, images you can get. And in this case, you can actually get four. If you get everything lined up perfectly, you'll get a ring. You'd actually get a ring. And I'm going to show you a thing of that in just, in just a couple of minutes once we're done with this. But you can actually make multiple images depending on exactly how well lined up the objects are. The better aligned, the more images you're going to get. And that's what you're getting here. You're actually getting you know, two here a little closer, two here a little bit further away. You're actually getting four images of the object that you don't see, probably behind this someplace that's blocked out by the galaxy, but we can actually see it through the, lens, through the gravitational lensing. Here's a couple more pictures. On the, on the one on the left hand side, it's not just a single black hole or galaxy, but you're getting lenses. You're getting the distant galaxies are being lensed. You see all these little kind of spiky little lines, little arcs. Those are all parts of the gravitational lens caused by the large galaxy and the cluster of galaxies that the light is traveling through. So you get a whole bunch of little arcs here that are the same type of thing. You're getting all the galaxies getting stretched out and deformed. Sort of because, you know, why was the other one nice images and this isn't? Well, you're getting, you're not getting a uniform mirror. Sort of like, you know, the funhouse mirrors where they, they're, they're all distorted. This gravity is all distorted because you have not just one source of it, but you have this one and this one, and when you put them all together, you can get an unusually distorted pattern. So it doesn't look exactly like the galaxy. You can actually distort them when you're looking at a cluster. Same thing here, all the blue is probably images of one galaxy, again, being lensed a number of different times by the different clusters. Different galaxies, the different clusters that are present here. So gravitational lensing is a good way for us to learn about what is happening in the distant distant universe because it's something we can see. We can actually see the effect. We understand, we believe how gravity works through Einstein. And then we can work back and look at, okay, to explain how this is working, we can figure out how the mass is distributed. Not just what we can see, all the mass. You know, we can see the galaxies. I can tell you how much mass in galaxies is there. We could get a good estimate there. But this is also telling you about the dark matter. How much dark matter is there? Because dark matter will help bend that light and you can actually map out dark matter by a similar process. So you can look at how the matter, how all this matter together has deformed the light from the distant galaxy and then work out how the dark matter has to be distributed throughout the clusters. And again, if you recall, that was a big chunk of the matter in the, in the clusters. A big chunk of it was the dark matter.
So here's an example of doing that. So there's a cluster of galaxies on one side. And then if we map out where the dark matter has to be, so we take into account all the matter we see to account for any gravitational lensing. We take that into account and then we, so we, that, that tells us how much the light should bend and if we see what the light is actually bent. We can go back and say, okay, where does the rest of the matter have to be in order to get the right image? And we can map out that, yes, it's concentrated at the center, but it's a lot bigger and a lot more uniform. So the dark matter isn't just concentrated into clumps like galaxies, it's more of a big blob sort of around the entire cluster. And our normal matter is the little clumps within. Now, so that's what we say. So again, just looking from the galaxy motion, from we can use the galaxy motion we did before, we can use the, uh, the gravitational lensing that we just talked about. Okay, I'm going to come back to this in just a second, but let me go ahead and show you one quick 40-second video that kind of shows this. This one. Come on. There it goes. And this is an example just watching <coughs> the gravitational source in red and blue here. And as you go through, you can see how it affects the distribution. And when it actually lines up perfectly, you start to get the circles. You'll actually get what they call an Einstein ring if you get things lined up exactly if it passes right in front of another galaxy. Now, we never see this. This is you know, at hyper speed compared to us. We see a snapshot. Any, if I pause this, that's what we might happen to see at any given instant. And if you come back a million years later, it will have moved a little ways along. The only way you get something like this is if there was a black hole passing very, very close to us. And do that one more time this way. Where is it? Come on. Doesn't want to start. Okay. Go back and start it again that way. But the same thing. Just wa- you can watch as it passes as this heavy source of gravity passes closer to the objects. You'll see how it starts to distort their shape, and then they go back to completely normal after. It's not really doing anything. It's just like sending you know a fancy lens through the universe, looking at it through a fisheye lens on a camera, something that really distorts things. And you can see when it lines up perfectly. And it happens to pass almost right over, right in front of a galaxy, you get almost a complete ring. You do get a complete ring around that. So just sort of a little more visual than just looking at the pictures of the gravitational lenses. You can actually see that there. And that's just going through, it's a simulation of the gravitational lens going over the Hubble, one of the Hubble deep fields, which is just Hubble looking way out into the deeper depths of space. All right, well, let me go and finish up that chapter. Just do the review here, and then we'll go on to the next one. Uh, all right, so again, just summarize real quick what we have here. A couple of ways to determine galaxy masses. We look at it a couple different ways. We can look at the rotation curves. So we looked at the rotation curves, how the stars rotate. We look at the stars as you move further and further out in the galaxy. And the way they move tells us there has to be a lot more mass there than we're actually seeing visibly. We can also look at their motion within clusters. So how the galaxies move within a cluster also can use that to determine their masses. So both of those are essentially using Kepler's third law to determine masses. 
and they're showing us that there's a lot of, ma a lot of dark matter that must exist. So a lot of dark matter, a lot of stuff that we don't actually see. And for a galaxy, it could be a couple times the amount of matter we see up to about 10 times the amount of matter we see. So for every star we see in a galaxy, there could be between 5 and 10 stars that would be beyond. That must be there, 5 or 10 stars worth of matter that we're not seeing. We talked about galaxies and their formation in terms of collisions and mergers that were very important in terms of forming large galaxies. We think when we look back at the very early history of the universe, which is one of the things we're going to look at in the regular lab this week, we're going to look at that. We see very, very small galaxies, a lot of small galaxies. When we look nearby, more current history of the universe, we see a lot of large galaxies. So we think that over time, a lot of small galaxies merge together to form these big ones. In order to get an elliptical, you've got to get rid of all the gas and dust. So a good way to do that might be to smash a couple of spiral galaxies together, really good, have them collide, stick together, and that would get an immense burst of star formation, right? You're colliding all those galaxies together, all those galaxies, all those clouds together at once. They all ignite, form stars, and you use up all the gas and dust. It's done. So what would be left behind, you'd probably you'd randomize the orbits of the, of the stars because you'd, that intense collision would throw off all the pattern. The spiral had a nice disk. It would be gone. And you'd just have random orbits and all the stars. And then this, the galaxy would be just slowly dying. Nothing else would ever happen in it. The, the stars would slowly die, work their way down the main sequence, and die. There'd be no new star formation as there is in a traditional spiral galaxy. And then we think you can go from quasars to active galaxies to normal galaxies. And we see them as you look further back in time. And remember in astronomy, we're looking back in time. When we look at the galaxies close to us, we see them as they were a few million years ago. That's how they are right now, essentially, in astronomical time when you're talking about 14, 15, 14 billion years. When we look further back, further out into space, we're looking back a little further, we tend to see more and more active galaxies. <coughs> when we look back to the depths of space, we see quasars. So we think it's sort of an evolutionary sequence. The quasars were the intense activity very early in the history of the universe when the galaxies were forming and colliding together. And then active galaxies, they started to quiet down. The black hole isn't being fed quite as well. And then normal galaxies still have the black hole there lurking at the center, but just not being, not being fed, not having energy coming into it, any material coming into it to increase its output. Galaxy clusters. We talked about galaxies. We had our cluster, the local group. We could make bigger clusters. And we had the Virgo cluster, but then those clusters go into superclusters. And we're going to come back to this at the beginning of the next chapter again. But it has structures up to the 100 to 200 million parsecs, but not beyond that. Beyond that, the universe is pretty uniform. It doesn't matter which part of it you look at. There's about the same number of galaxies. There's no big structure. There's no void that's 300 megaparsecs across. There's no great wall that's 300 megaparsecs across or anything larger in the universe. So when we get that big, it's one of the things we'll talk about in our next chapter, is how, is how uniform the universe is. And finally, we talked about quasars and using them to, talk, to study, the spa study space in between us. 
So between us and the quasar, we can look at the hydrogen lines. So all the little bit of hydrogen absorption from that quasar's light as it travels between us and the earth, between the earth and between us and the earth. Wow, that's a short trip. Between the, between the quasar and us. And especially if there's lensing in the galaxy. If, there, if there's a lens in front of it, we can learn a lot about that galaxy that's doing the lensing. And a lot, and something about the quasar as well. Okay. Questions on 16? Almost done. Two to, two to go. 17, 18. We'll make it. All right. On to 17. Course, it's a little easier this semester than last one. We didn't get all the days washed out due to what water main break or something that shut us down for a week. So we were rushing at the end that time. Chapter 17 sort of picks up where we left off. We we're doing galaxies and dark matter. Cosmology is just sort of the study of the universe as a whole. The Biggest reaches, we're going to look at everything. We're going to look at the very largest scale structures. We looked at some of that before. We're going to come back to that again. And then we're going to look at the origin of the universe and the sort of the history of the universe kind of thing. So how did it form? What might happen? What might be the eventual fate of the universe? What will happen to it? So first of all, the universe on the largest scales. So we've sort of where we picked up, where we finished up last time. We looked at some maps of that, and I'm going to show you those again. And we'll talk about it in a little bit different, different perspective here. Then we talked about the universe expanding. We're going to look about that in a little bit more detail. What is space like? What is the shape of space? So it's sort of a, this is where it starts to, if it hasn't blown your mind already, this is where it really comes up when you start talking about the different, what is the shape of the universe and where is the center of the universe and you know, what's beyond the edge of the universe and things that you try, that try to make sense and when you try to go through, try to think about the answers, they kind of, they give you a headache. So, sorry. But that's what we're going to do. And then what will happen? We're talking about the shape of space. And we'll compare it. What you often do is we'll, we'll take it down a dimension. Because it's kind of hard to imagine a sphere and expand it. But we can think about like a balloon expanding. And you just have to imagine you're stuck to the surface of that balloon. And you can do things like that. And you can sort of make a comparison, an analogy, because you can't imagine a fourth dimension. You, know, you can't visualize it. You can see three, right? You know, up and down and left and right and forward and back. But where's the fifth one that's perpendicular to all of those simultaneously? Where's the next one? They're there, we just can't see them because of, our, because of our perspective. We're confined to three dimensions. We can't see the other ones. So we'll come back to that. Fate of the universe, what will happen? Depends a lot on what the geometry is. So does the universe expand forever? Does it collapse and implode again? Depends exactly on what the shape of the shape of the space is. Then most of the rest of this chapter is on the very, very early history of the universe. So what's happening early in the universe? How did we form the I told you the hydrogen and helium formed in the Big Bang here, which is what we'll talk about. And how did they form? Cosmic inflation. Nothing to do with monetary inflation. Inflation of space, space getting bigger. And then coming back, sort of coming full circle here at the end, we'll be talking about how did we get, we start out talking about the largest scale structure that we see. 
Then we'll come back at the end, how did we get there? So how did that large scale structure form and why did it form the way that we see it? And then after that, in the next chapter, we get to talk about life in the universe and come a little bit back, a little bit closer to home. So this is the last one to the edges. This is the one that goes to the edges of the edges of the known universe. So we looked at a picture very similar to this last time. I talked about the Great Wall. And the Great Wall here is a big stretch of galaxies that goes across in space at a certain distance, about 300 megaparsecs away from us. We're down here at the center. We're back at the center of the universe now. now put you, we, we, I told you we weren't there. Now when I show you the images, we're back there again. We're not. We're not at the center of the universe because if any other astronomer were to make this same plot, it would look identical and they'd be at the center. It's just the way the universe expands, because the universe is expanding, it always doesn't matter which, which planet you happen to be on, which star, which galaxy you happen to be in, every other galaxy is moving away from you because it's all of space that's expanding. But yes, that's, that's us down here at the little, little zero point. But you do see some structures. But overall, when you look at things that are about 300 megaparsecs, about three bars on here, it really does, you don't see any structure. You don't see any structure that goes across. You know, that one fits in there. That's one of the biggest structures in the universe. Anything else you look at, it's pretty much the same. It doesn't matter whether I look at this section here, this section here, here. I get about the same. The only difference you see, again, is that you notice that as you get further and further out, there's fewer galaxies. There's not fewer galaxies. They're just harder to see. But the whole idea is the universe is very, very smooth on the big scales. When we look down on small scales, then it's very lumpy. When we look at things that are 100 megaparsecs, then you can find areas where there's big lump here, big void. But as I said, you don't see that tremendous void that fills a whole big chunk of this. You see a void here, here. You know, it's a little frothy, almost a frothy, foamy appearance to the universe. So what we say is that the universe is homogeneous. If I pick a 300 megaparsec square block on that previous picture, it really looks about anything else, any other section. You don't see a big difference between the, between the two. So homogeneous just means that every little block looks the same as any other. The universe is also isotropic. It doesn't matter which direction we look. If we look this way, I see a certain number of galaxies. If we look this way, I see a certain number of galaxies. If I look that way, whichever way I look, I see about the same number of galaxies. Is it going to be perfectly identical? No. Is it going to average out? Yeah, we'll see about the same average number. You're not going to see areas where you see more or less stars. Now that's different just to compare to our own galaxy. Our galaxy was not isotropic, right? If we look in the plane of our galaxy, we see a lot more stars than if we look out of the plane of our galaxy. So our galaxy was not isotropic, but the universe appears to be. Doesn't matter which way I look, I'll see essentially the same numbers and same types of galaxies in every direction. And what we're coming up with here is what we call the cosmological principle, which says that the universe is isotropic and homogeneous. So it includes those two assumptions. So we're figuring that this, we're assuming that that is the case. Based on our observations so far, it looks like they are. It looks like the universe is the same no matter which way you look. You don't see areas where there's, you know, 
I count this direction, I see 5,000 galaxies when I look around in this area, but if I look other places, I see 10 galaxies or 100 galaxies. It's all roughly the same to within measurements. Come on. Which leads us to Olber's paradox. If the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, and also infinite and unchanging, then that means the night sky should be incredibly bright and not dark. So Olber's paradox is essentially the question is why is the night sky dark? Because when this was put together hundreds of years ago, the universe was infinite, it never changed, nothing changed, and if we assumed it was homogeneous and isotropic, which I've just been showing you, then no matter where you look out in space, you should eventually see a star. You know, any, inst- any direction I look in space, I should eventually see a star if the universe is infinite. So the Olber's paradox was essentially the question is, why is the night sky dark? Because if, if, this was, if these assumptions are correct, all four of these, then no matter where I look, if I eventually am going to hit a galaxy, a star, I'm eventually going to hit something. And we didn't, because the night sky is dark. Now, of course, if all of those assumptions, if some of those, one of those assumptions is wrong, then that will solve Olber's paradox, and there won't be a paradox, because it's based on those four assumptions. And the universe, well, may be infinite, but there's another issue there. The universe we now know that we didn't know at the time is isn't unchanging, right? The universe is expanding, and there's a lot more involved in the universe then we thought the universe is constantly changing. So it is changing over time. It's not the same now as it was 12 billion years ago. And it will not be the same now as it will be 12 billion years from now. So the universe's big thing is that the universe is not unchanging. It is constantly changing. It's expanding as in one method of how it's getting, how it's one example of how it's getting bigger, how it's changing. So. Why is it dark? We said we've seen that it is, that it's homogeneous and isotropic, so those two assumptions look like they're right. So it has to either not be infinite, that's still a possibility, could it be infinite or might not be infinite, or unchanging. But as I just said, we know it's changing. We talked about Hubble's law. We know that things are changing because galaxies are moving away from us and they're moving away us faster the further away they are. So those quasars at the edge of the universe are moving away from us incredibly quickly, and the nearby galaxies are moving away from us at a much more leisurely pace. And this was the equation that we gave for Hubble's law, so that if we measure, if we measure a velocity, that was real easy to get. We could measure a velocity, determine Hubble's constant, So we divide that there, I can determine the distance to a galaxy very easy. All I have to do is be able to see a spectrum of it. So if I can see the light from that galaxy, if I can see the light from that quasar, and I have enough light to spread it out into a spectrum that I can see the, that I can pick up the hydrogen lines. I don't even pick up anything fancy as long as I can see the hydrogen lines, which are usually going to be the strongest, because hydrogen is 90% of the universe, I can determine the distances. So this is our really good way of getting our distances in the universe. Very good way of getting, as long as we're looking well out into the universe. Doesn't work real good close, but it works very good for the very most distant galaxies. 
So, if we do that and work backwards, that means if the galaxies were all, are all expanding away from each other, what were they like a billion years ago? Closer together. Two billion years ago. Five billion years ago. Ten billion years ago. We could work backwards to find out how long it took the galaxies to get where they were. Time equals distance divided by velocity, right? Remember that? So if you want to figure out how long it took, you just take the distance that they're apart and divide it by how fast that quasar is moving away from us. But that velocity is just Hubble's constant times the distance. So the time doesn't matter. The time is always the same. The distances cancel out. And the time is just exactly 1 divided by Hubble's constant. So Hubble's constant is essentially tells you the age of the universe. And Hubble's constant was what? Somewhere around 75 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Plus or minus that. It's around that area that we get. So if we take 1 and divide it by that, it tells us the age of the universe. That doesn't look like it's going to work, does it? 1 divided by 75? It's a pretty small number. Part of the problem is you've got to watch the units here. And I didn't give you the problem, but one problem you can do is actually go through a unit conversion to actually do it for a value and convert megaparsecs to kilometers. And it will give you, you know, 13 billion years, 13 billion years. I'm not making you do it. It won't be on the final. But you can't just do it directly. I can't just say 1 divided by 75 because you have kilometers and megaparsecs. If you wrote the Hubble's constant in kilometers per second per kilometer, then it would be direct. direct. But those aren't the units that make sense. You measure velocities in kilometers per second, but when we're talking about those distances, kilometers are incredibly small. But that directly gives us the distance. So Hubble's constant is a direct measure of the age of the universe. If we make certain assumptions. Right? We're making an assumption when we do this. We're assuming that the velocity didn't change. So we're assuming that this galaxy that's moving away from us at 500 kilometers per second has always been moving at 500 kilometers per second. Could it have slowed down? Could it have sped up? That would throw a wrench into the, calcula- into the exact calculation if it's not a uniform velocity, if the velocity has changed over time. Which it should, right? Should things slow down? Right? If they're all expanding, what's gravity trying to do? Pull them back down. You know? Tries to pull the pen back. It pulls the pen back down to Earth. The higher I throw it, the higher up it'll go, but it comes back down. Well, if there's enough mass in the universe, the galaxy should eventually stop expanding. We'll see what's happening there later on in this chapter. So, if we use Hubble's constant of 70, about what I gave you here, we find that the time. So take 70, convert your kilometers to megaparsecs, and fix up all your units there. Again, you don't have to do it. Don't worry about it. But if you do that, you end up finding that 1 divided by this and convert it to years, not seconds, is about about 14 billion years. So that gives us a rough estimate of the age of the universe. Again, that does depend on the velocities not changing. If this galaxy is moving at 75 kilometers per second away from us, That says it's always been doing 75. 
If it's slowing down, was it going 80 kilometers per second or 90 kilometers per second earlier and now it's down to 75? Or is it sped up? Wouldn't think that could happen, right? Shouldn't be going any faster. And the other thing that I mentioned, I mentioned this when we were talking about the diagrams and we looked at the different the universe we put us at the center. Hubble's law doesn't matter who's measuring it. So if I'm measuring it here and somebody's measuring it in the Andromeda galaxy and somebody else is measuring it on a distant quasar, they all get exactly the same thing. They'll all get exactly the same expansion. The expansion is universal. The entire universe is expanding. When we see that quasar, we see it as it was 13 billion years ago, very early in the history of the universe. But somebody living now on that quasar, it's no longer a quasar, it's probably now just a nice normal galaxy after those 13 billion years that we have to wait to see it evolve, you know, waiting for that light to come. So an astronomer there still sees us as an active galaxy or a mini galaxy or a mini quasar or whatever we happen to be at the time. But they would still get exactly the same measurements. They would measure the same value for Hubble's constant. It doesn't matter who is doing the observing. So, if we go backwards, we take this backwards, we take all these galaxies back together, eventually we're going to put them in a much smaller space. The universe is going to get more and more compacted. And that's what we're calling eventually, if you keep doing it and take it to its conclusion, eventually you bring everything back to a point. So you bring everything back to, you know, hold the universe in my hands, right? Smash. That's what we call the Big Bang. The event that occurred that expanded it would be called the Big Bang. And this is, this is, where, this is one of the one places where we tend to, we have to tend to start thinking a little bit differently. We tend to think of an explosion, you think of an explosion occurring at a certain point in space. Well, an explosion, the Big Bang was what created space. There was no space for it to occur in, it just occurred and then created space and time and everything, and it occurred everywhere in the universe at once. But the universe was all right here. But there was nothing else, and there was nothing else beyond it. So no matter where we are, whatever we are in the universe, we measure the same thing. So we measure the same Hubble's law, we see the same expansion. So again, an observer in that distant galaxy sees us, sees our galaxy, measures our galaxy, and says we're zooming away from them very, very quickly. Every other galaxy sees each galaxy moving away from them. The explosion occurred uniformly within the entire universe at once. And actually, you have to think about it, it actually created space. There was no space in which for it to explode, like you think about a bomb exploding. It explodes in a certain place. This actually created everything. But the measurements are the same. The same relationship, the same expansion, everything is seen. It doesn't matter that we're doing the observations here or if someone else is doing them on another distant, in a distant galaxy. They're going to get the same number. So here's the example. And again, as I said, we're going down a dimension. So you think about this in terms of a balloon. And they do it with sticking coins to a balloon. I always think if you're going to do the example, and I have some of my online students do it, actually get a balloon and draw some little galaxies on it and blow it up. And watch, how they and watch how they expand. I just always figure coins, even how many you stick them on there, are probably going to fall off as the balloon starts to expand. But you could draw little galaxies on there. The only iffy thing you have with that is that the galaxies really don't expand. 
And your galaxies are going to expand if you draw them on there. It looks like your galaxies are getting bigger and they're not really getting bigger. But we're going down a dimension. So we're here we're thinking about the whole universe is just the surface of the balloon. So you're confined to the surface. You can't look up, you can't look down. You can only look right on the surface of the balloon. As far as you're concerned, the balloon keeps getting bigger, so you're stuck on one of these coins. Every other coin is getting further and further away from you. It doesn't matter if you're on this one, or this one, or this one. Each other coin is getting further and further away from you as you blow up the balloon. So as each coin gets further and further, it doesn't, so it doesn't matter who's doing the observation. But the other thing that you see is that if you're stuck on the surface of the balloon and you can't leave, and you keep walking around that balloon and exploring, Where's the center? Where, where is your explosion that started it? You don't, you, you know, there's no, nothing there. You can walk around the entire surface of the balloon and you'll never find the center. Right? Keep going around it. If I'm confined to that surface and I can never leave it, I won't see the center. You'll never see the center. It's in another dimension. You're confined to two dimensions. So where's the center of the, explo- where's the, center of the expansion of the universe? Well, if we have a three-dimensional universe or 11 or 12 or whatever it's up to now with the current string theories, it's in a different dimension that we can't see. We're confined to our visibility is only three dimensions. The comparable contrast is here, and I'll come back to this again Wednesday or Friday, depending on when I get your other assignment ready, um, and talk about that. But it's, we're confined to that surface. You cannot see it. You cannot see the center of the universe, and there's no edge to the universe either, right? Again, you can only see the surface of the balloon. You can't look up. You can't look down. You're only in, stuck in two dimensions. You're a little two-dimensional figure stuck on that. If you can't leave that, there's no edge to the universe. You can keep going forever and around and around. You might come back where you started, but there's no actual edge to it. And there's no center. If you can go up and be a three-dimensional creature and come back and look down, then you can say, well, obviously there's a center. Obviously there's an edge. You just can't see it. So if you can have a four-dimensional creature look at us and say, well, yeah, there's a fourth dimension. It's right there. It's easy. But we can't see it because we're stuck in three. Throw everybody's minds already? I'm going to go ahead and we'll go ahead and stop there. I'll come back and finish this up on, say it'll be Wednesday or Friday. If I get your assignment ready, I'm going to try for Wednesday and we'll do the, do the observations then. If not, we'll do a double lab on Friday. So, have a good rest of the day.